So, here we are, note up number three. Nobody thought it would ever make it this far. Um, you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, I'm Isaac Schluter. Some of you may know me from my work on NPM and Node. Uh, also with us today is Pyjinx, Paolo uh, Fragomeni. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, almost, yeah. Fragomeni. Fragomeni. Yeah. And um, Felix Geisendorfer of Transloaded, also one of the earliest Node users, and your silent host, Craig Jordan Muir. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit distracted. I'm, I'm pumping some water into this, some boiling water into like a uh, uh, coffee thing. I'm, I'm not actually urinating, if you can hear that. <laughs> um, so, you, what do you guys want to talk about? Do you want to start with... Um the node meetup you had and the pain points oh, yeah, you yeah. were discussing. Thanks. So, um, yeah, so we had this node meetup last week, uh, or just this past Thursday, and um, some really, really interesting talks. Basically, there were three, uh, three people who spoke. One was um, Matt Rainey from Boxer. Um, the... Uh, Oh god, I always forget this guy's name, and then I feel really terrible about it. Like Craig Johnson, Chris, Chris something. Ah, I'm terrible. I'm a bad person. Anyway, um, the uh, the the engineering manager, the lead lead engineering guy from uh, from Uber, the uh, the cab company in San Francisco, and um, David uh, Pacheco from Joyent, who has. Who was speaking about our uh, cloud analytics dehook, dtrace hooks that, you know, take dtrace information and instrumentations and then feed it up to a node service, and so you can see these live real-time heat maps of of what you're doing, of what's going on in all your zones. So, um, the thing that was really fascinating about this is that it seems like everybody's kind of solving a very similar problem with node, um, and running into very similar pain points. The one that I think we kept hearing over and over again is like, stuff breaks, and then you have no idea why. You know, and, and certainly that's not every Node program, but that's sort of like the, uh, the, the overarching theme was like, you really have to plan on what you're going to do when, when a cluster goes down or when a, when a Node goes down and like, kind of be ready for that and just log the hell out of everything. Uh, so Felix, I was wondering, like, from your point of view, dealing with Transloaded, you said you've been kind of uh, under the gun to make things work lately as you've been growing. And what what have been the sort of issues that you've run into, and how you kind of worked around it? Yeah, well, a, a Transloaded Node is working pretty well for us, but um, I guess for the longest time we were just like a really tiny service doing very small amounts of uh, data with Node, and now that we uh, have got some bigger clients and a lot of uploads coming in. Um, we're, we're seeing more and more problems that partially our node are to blame for, or maybe our our inability to properly handle them yet. Um, the things that you mentioned that stuff breaks and you don't know why is a very difficult problem for us because we do incredible amounts of like work for single um, HTTP requests. A node we basically receive one file and then we do like millions of things with it. 
um, like encoding it into five different formats, storing each result file on S3, and then each of those steps has sub-steps like parsing meta information from files. And so if something goes wrong anywhere along the line, it's really difficult sometimes to, to trace the context of what, what happened. Um, I guess the first line of defense that we implemented and had for a while is to have an uncored exception listener and lock all those exceptions away to, to another service. Um, we use a service called Airbrake for that, uh, as it was previously Hoptoad. Um, and I actually used to use an old module for that on NPM, but I got fed up with it. And I think a few weeks ago, I turned, made a new uh, node module, node Airbrake. And it's really easy node modules that you can basically include. And if you have an account with the Airbrake thing, um, you just say, this is my API key. Um, and please lock all uncaught exceptions to the service, and then it will automatically do exactly that for it. It will try to contact Airbreak if there's an uncaught exception, and uh, once that is done or times out for some reason, then it shuts down the process. In addition to that, we also have logging to log files, of course, um, but having like a service catching all the exceptions and showing you context information is good. Um, what, kind of, um, what kind of context information do you get? Yeah, that's that's a problematic thing. What what we do is um, we when we create the error object, when we have the luxury of creating it somehow, um, it's usually not supposed to be thrown. But in case it happens, we try to attach properties to the error object. So as much context as we can, we we attach to the error object and then uh, serialize it into a JSON string when uh, sending it to hop or airbreak. Um, for those errors that we don't have any additional information. Uh, we we lock everything that is in process.env in the environment. We lock all environment variables. Um, we do lock the stack trace as far as available. Um, we do um, try to call a few uh, synchronous node APIs that can give us more information, like we call what was the current memory usage, um, what is the current user, um, I think I have it documented somewhere. Basically, everything you can get uh, in a synchronous way, because you, you don't really want to keep the event loop going much much longer after you reach an exception, because it, it, the stack could be flown anywhere, and now calling uh, methods on objects that had their stack dropped could lead to unexpected results, because they, they just lost their um, internal uh, cleanup function. It didn't do its job because it was interrupted before. Um, right, or, or you could end up in, you know, in a situation where you have, uh, where you have memory leaks because you're you know, not properly closing out of all the all the uh, areas that you're. Yes. I guess it's basically what you're saying, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, well, mem memory leaks are a different animal, and that's actually a problem we haven't solved yet. We the other day, I think we've seen it once or twice now. It's definitely not a common problem in our app, but we we saw a process just suddenly hawking memory, but n not quickly, like played out over I don't know two or three hours. Uh, we we were seeing it in our. Uh, we use Munin to monitor processes and server stuff. Um, we, we just saw it in the crafts there, and well, you don't get an uncaught exception when the process runs out of memory, so there isn't any like service you can call and automatically notify. You have to monitor this condition from the outside and then send the message from the outside. Um, but it's really difficult to tell what just happened. We have an application that normally has no memory leaks, and now the process blows up, and we are basically left with no trace of what happened. Um, I don't know what's the current state of artists for that. I think some people manage to hook the new Chrome memory profiler thing up to, to Node. I think I saw a module for that. I don't know if you guys have. But e even then, how, how do you um, 
how do you get the memory dump or heap uh, before the moment before you ran out of memory? How can you later investigate? I think that's probably something that Node itself needs to address in the core. What do you guys so think? There, there is, I, I agree with you. I, th I think that, so there is a, um, an API now to, to get a, a dump of what's in the heap, um, in, the, in the V8, like the V8 internal heap. But um, from what I've heard, it's not exactly, it's not exactly straightforward, and it's a C++ API, so you, you have to like bind to it. Um, but yeah, I, I think everybody is pretty much seeing at this point that like this is the, this is the pain point of using Node in production, you know? And it's not, it's not a pain point you, you don't have in other languages. Like, to be fair to Node, it's, it's a pain point you don't see in PHP because you never get there. Like, you never have enough production that you're, enough uh, traffic on a single, uh, single thread or single program that you're, you're bumping into this problem right away. Yeah, we've found mostly in our scenarios that it's been less about Node having problems and more about um, actual infrastructure having problems. But when it is Node, having problems. Um, I think Felix had a really awesome idea, which is something that we also do, which is creating a custom error object. Um, uh -huh. that's, that's really powerful. It actually helps us a lot. We use uh, something called Winston, which is a multi-transport um, logging library uh, that helps us to basically pass along custom object uh, metadata like that um, and, and pass it into um, our logging um, a database that lives in the cloud. That's that's. I mean, keeping track, trying to find out histor like keep historical data on these things is really important because um, once you can see patterns, you can start to understand where um, the issues are coming from. Uh, they could be issues in user land. Um, like there's very few things that you know um, we don't know about that are causing major issues in Node right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think you hit on the point with the. Um, I think you hit on it pretty well when you said like infrastructure problems. But I, I, in my experience, like if you if as the as the number of of connections and, and like the number of of different kind of edge cases you're pushing starts to increase, right? The, so does the probability that something is going to happen that can't happen. Like, you know, you you have some branch in your code and it's like impossible to get there and you trace through your code and it's like there is no way that anything can ever get here. I'm going to throw an exception right here to make well, I, sure that one of the that, one of the things that Felix brought up which is I, I'm not sure like maybe I'm kind of going off onto a tangent but breaking breaking code up into more discrete units where you're able to um, isolate issues better is really important like um, I uh, you know no jitsu we have like a very um, service-oriented architecture. Not that everything needs to be services, but um, when units of code are broken up into more discrete, um, uh, you know, uh, pieces, you can you can usually identify these problems a lot easier. And you don't go through those big stacks and desire for things like uh, long stack traces. <laughs> with with uh, individual units, you mean like separate node processes talking um, to yeah. each other, or yeah? So we actually so. Um, yeah, we've been we've been sort of diving big time into Hook.io, um, which is allowing us to to sort of break apart big programs into um, you know smaller services, which um, you know talk to each other uh, about you know kind of what they're doing and what's going on. And when one of those smaller pieces fails, um, it's not as big of an issue because we're able to you know have the other services bring it back up. Um, it's kind of like the limb regrowing itself. Yeah, you know, there's. And this is, um, you know, like like most good ideas in Node, this is not something that didn't exist before. But um, 
at at Joint, we um, we have similar things like that, like message message passing between different uh, different nodes for for high availability. And I mean, there's there's uh, uh, there's stuff like uh, RabbitMQ. Yeah, is a really good tool for that. So or AMQP rather, so that you can um, you know just kind of like put a message on that message broker, and then you know when things go down, you can you can keep track of that, and kind of everybody can be sharing their state. Definitely, I think that I think that that's one strategy for definitely being able to isolate issues, and and if you have really large complex programs, being able to 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 break things apart into smaller like isolated operating. Um, you know, units, then well, that works really well for us. Right, right. So you can tank a server and, and not exactly. you know, lose every, every connection. You, you, you minimize the scope of the damage. Exactly. Of course, if, if in, you know, Transloaded's case, if you have, um, if you lose even one large upload, that can actually be really painful, right? Yeah, it, it depends a lot on your app. For example, for uh, Matt Rennie uh, with his Voxer service, he's able to control the client. So he has this iPhone client, and if he has it like a process dying on him, like the client can retry. We don't always have that luxury with like people uploading from their browsers. We we provide a plugin, but people can integrate our service any way they want, and they expect it to be stable. Um, so right now we're really like doing research on how we can isolate uh, connections, individual connections, into uh, one node process. And it turns out to be pretty hard because by the time you get an um, HTTP request event from the HTTP server, um, you are no longer guaranteed that meanwhile not, uh, meanwhile not a few other clients have already connected. That's because while the accept, uh, the accept on the connection happens in a loop that you can uh, then disable after you receive the first one, the HTTP request event doesn't happen until the headers have arrived. So by the time the headers of a single connection can have arrived, there could be multiple um, connections already in your process. Um, right, so you have, now, to, so you have to hook into the like the actual socket on the server, or the um, or what? Like, there's a isn't there a like a connection event that you get on the the underlying yes yes you server? get a, yes you get a connection event, but the problem is we don't want to. Take all of our pro, uh, incoming requests and isolate them in one process because the overhead is kind of big for like a get me give me some JSON output uh, route. You, you oh, don't I see. So put if, you're, if you're just making a head request or an options or some shit like that, you don't want to like you don't want to spawn off a new process for every single HTTP request. I mean, yeah, it's it's madness because if latency is important, you're actually losing like 60 milliseconds due to well, Node boot up has sped up again. I think Ryan optimized it. To, mm -hmm. We're down at like 30 like, milliseconds or something. Um, but by the time you load a whole stack of libraries and stuff, you have like 60 to 100 milliseconds of boot up time for a node process. And that's your response time you now have as a minimum. And that's obviously not the stuff we're trying to do with node. So yeah. what, what we're trying to do right now, and I don't know if it's too crazy or not, but we're trying to take the file descriptor. What, once we receive the HTTP request event, we try to take the file descriptor and pass that along to to a child process, but only if the URL matches what, what we want to isolate. Um, so it still exposes us to some problems because in between us receiving the HTTP request event and the child process having booted up, we could hit an exception. So there's like, I don't know, 100, 100 milliseconds of uh, uh, time period where an exception would still make us lose a connection. But the good thing here is we would lose a fresh new connection, so the client would get an error right away versus somebody uploading a video for like two hours and then getting an exception. 
um, and having no ability to resume at this point. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty hard because now the, by the point you get an HTTP request object, that HTTP request object may already internally have buffered some data from the body because the parser, well, it emits the event when it sees the headers, but there may already be more data. So you also have to catch the first data event on that request and then pass that on to the sub-process as well. So then you have to try to clean up Node's internal HTTP uh, server state and basically telling him, telling the server, hey, forget about this connection. It's now being handled in another process. So you have to manually decre decrement the connection uh, count on the server object and maybe do more magic. We're not sure yet. And... Um, well, then you have to kind of recreate the HTTP request object in your child process, which Node's API is not really exposing at this point. We're probably going to have to do some nasty things to make it work for now. But I think it's an area where the Node core maybe should provide a solution. I'm not sure. But if you have this kind of problem like we do, it's really, really hard to solve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... I um I think that I've kind of I've kind of mentioned this before too. Like I think really the best way to handle situations like that is like what what you want in a in a catastrophic failure situation is you want to like you want to crash that server, but not you know but have it isolated so that it doesn't destroy the rest of your application. Um, and there's not a great way to do that right now in Node. There there are kind of a lot of these hand rolled things like what you're doing and uh, uh, Voxer and and Uber and. Um, and stuff had had very similar things where they kind of isolate a, a collection of servers that can all talk to each other, and then if one goes down, they can always bring another one back up. Yeah, the, there's two kinds of of catastrophic failures. Right, there's there's like the server just is totally unresponsive, and then like a node process is totally unresponsive. So like in the in the um, case that a node process is completely unresponsive, um, being able to have like a process pool of like nodes that are running applications that can serialize information between them um, is kind of cool because like I don't I don't know if this addresses the issue for Felix but um, there is the opportunity to be able to take uh, um, one node that's failing and have the other observe that and then uh, delegate responsibility to the second and then have the second spin up a, another um, uh, sort of failover node as the as the second one is taking over. Uh, that that's um, a design that um, that I've exercised a few times. Right, but it doesn't really like prevent the existing connections from that uh, process to to die. Right, it, it, you're right. And that that's the main thing we have to solve. I mean, right. if you have deal with short-lived connections, you can like kind of say, okay, I'm losing maybe ten concurrent clients right now, which are really fast connections anyway. They'll just retry or whatever. Yeah. Um, eventual consistency like S3 where, well, sometimes you return crazy error codes because you're in the mood for it. So the client has to know, knows he has to retry all the time anyway. Then that's okay. But for like transferring big amounts of data over long running connections, well, we're kind of up in the air. One thing that gets just mentioned in the IRC channel, which is another uh, like approach we're exploring is to basically have a proxy server in front of our whole service and that proxy basically um, then makes a decision of like isolating something or not in the in the um, in its logic. We would probably not use node itself for that. We might use HA proxy and um, if HA proxy detects a certain URL then it would send it to a node process on a different port which then does the process isolation. And it would know to do it always, and 
do it right when the connection comes in, uh, which would be much easier to handle, I think. Um, but well, we, we still have to, I guess, we would still have to do the HTTP parsing manually because now we're getting a raw TCP connection. We're passing the file descriptor from a raw uh, TCP connection. And I don't think you can easily inject that back into another instance of a node server and tell it, hey, here's another file descriptor. Pretend you just received that from an actual request. I don't think it's quite that easy, but we'll play with it. <clears throat> That's interesting stuff. Well, well, luckily, what we can say for Node is um, we, we've managed to basically fight the problem up until now by making sure our software runs really well. And mm -hmm. we, we've done a lot of testing. And so usually now we're able to do, I don't know, maybe 60, 70,000 uploads on a single process until it ends up dying. So every few days or so, we, we lose, a, lose a few uploads, but, which is sometimes really, really, really annoying. But it's still in the, like, the tolerable uh, phase. But w once we grow to like, the next phase of like, scale, I, I think it's going to be a, like an absolute no-go. So we need to solve this problem properly now. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, the, testing, um, the testing thing is you know, just like having really good tests and having a lot of um, very, very deep coverage, I know is really a, a passion of yours, Felix. So, and, um, you know, obviously that's always going to make your, your programs more stable and more, more well understood. Um, yeah, I'm, like I'm actually, uh, there's uh, also some node uh, core problems, I think, that kind of make the testing a little hard right now. Basically, in for the longest time at Transloaded, we've really focused on like pure unit tests and we were really like um, uptight about not doing any I.O. whatsoever in any of our tests, only for like integration tests. Um, we're moving away from that a little bit um, just because we're, we're starting to use more NPM modules. And if you're writing code against somebody else's code, you actually probably want to exercise that code for real to see that it, the API actually does what you expect it to do. So if you just stub or mock out somebody, somebody else's API, the test is not going to be as reliable as if you do it for methods you've written yourself and you know exactly what guarantees they provide or not. And so we're now doing more actual async tests where we uh, fire up uh, HTTP servers or do requests on the file system and then just look at the end result or just mock a few things along the way. And um, it's really hard to write a test framework for that because one of the things you usually want to test for is once this piece of code is done running, am I no longer uh, occupying the event loop with some outstanding tests? Basically, are there any watchers left? Um, for now, I've... I'm not solving this problem because I don't know how. But in reality, well, the, you would want the way the way that I've yeah. solved that problem, uh, the way that I've run written tests that work that way is um, having a uh, having the the actual test program run in a child process, <coughs> and then making sure that it exits within a you know reasonable timeout. So if it if it sits there doing nothing for thirty seconds, then you know okay, it's it's not exiting properly. Yeah, that's what we've been doing for all of our integration tests so far as well, and that works perfectly. It's really mm -hmm. easy. Have one. Uh, it also solves other problems, like if you have an exception occurring at any time, which test did it belong to? Well, if there's only one test in the file, it's not too hard to figure out. Um, exactly, and then and then basically you can just look at the file as a as a test, you know, right. or a, a sweet a bunch of tests, and then if the if the 
if that call to that child process exits with something other than zero, then that's a failure. If it times out, you kill it, and that's a failure. You know, so... Right. So, so, so I think it was you, Felix, that was actually telling me like having multiple tests in a single file is just bad anyways. Yeah, but the thing is I, I was thinking it was bad anyways for I think the right reasons, but th there's also arguments where you need multiple uh, tests in one file. And that case is simply what is if you're actually really writing a lot and a lot of tests. Um, booting up some parts of your application may uh, consistently take 100 to 200 milliseconds, especially if there's database and operations and queries involved, or let, just like setup code, retrieving the config from some other service and connecting some clients and doing some preparation before you can actually run, and then maybe some shutdown procedure. So if you have like 100, 200 milliseconds overhead uh, per individual test, um, that's going to become slow very fast. I mean, we have probably thousands of little test cases in Transloaded. And if we want to make more of them actually do I.O. because we're testing against other people's code and we have to run off their code to know ours works, um, it's really, really slow. Um, so Rackspace people, I think, have an approach like that kind of automates um, so running stuff in an individual processing. They have, um, what's the name, uh, Paul's or his friend's test suit, uh, whiskey, I believe. Whiskey. whiskey. Yeah, whiskey. Yeah, I think, I think they, they are solving that by basically you write all your tests in one file and then they just keep starting a node process with this file over and over, but the no, uh, child process knows which of the test cases to run. Um, so that solves a lot of problems. Like, for example, it makes it easier if you have thousands of tests to organize them. You no longer have like a million files flying around, which can be annoying in itself. Um, mm -hmm. But it doesn't solve the speed problem. And I think nothing will solve the speed problem. If you really you know, want to make sure your test suit runs in a reasonable amount of time, you kind of want to run multiple tests in one process, I think. I think that the problem with testing, or one of, the, one of the big problems with testing, is that there's really no single solution that works for every program. right? I mean, the best, the best test frameworks are the ones that are the most, um, the most simple to use and understand and also the, the most flexible. Because... Um, there are some cases where, yeah, you want to stub out everything. You want to do just strictly unit tests because you're, you're testing some API that has very well understood guarantees. Um, and then other cases where, you know, you want to actually throw some, some real weight behind it and see how it, how it performs with doing real IO. So yeah. And I mean, sometimes where this, the startup time is, is negligible and other times where it's, where it's really you know, painful. So I don't. I don't think that there's any like hard and fast rule that's gonna that's gonna work. Except just have a lot of tests and and use your human brain to figure out what kinds of tests you need. Yeah, I, I have a new idea for like making a philosophy on how to test things. Um, I'm working on a module which is not prime time ready yet. I'm using it for. I, I just rewrote the test suit for my MySQL module with it, but mm -hmm. you, you shouldn't use it yet if you're not me. Um, it's called Node <laughs> Fast or Slow. And basically, my main idea for this is I've been thinking about this testing problem for a long time now. And I've been really crazy about just pure unit testing at one point. But I also see the benefits of the other testing. And, but what it really boils down to for me is speed. Like, I don't care if a test actually like, makes a DNS request if that test finishes in like 20 milliseconds. Who cares? What I care about is, is my test running fast? Can I write like millions of these little fast tests or is it running slow? And so this new test case actually splits your test suit into two categories, fast or slow. And there's rules. 
So basically, every fast test has to finish in less than 100 milliseconds. If it takes any longer than that, there will be an exception. So if you want to do async code uh, in a fast test, it, you kind of need to know it's going to be fast and always fast. So it kind of discourages you to do async I.O. Um, or any I.O. really um, if you, if you want to write a lot of tiny little tests. And so slow tests are more reasonable. They give you three seconds timeout by default, but you can bump it up to any value that you need because some, some tests legitimately take longer. Um, but the rules also change a little bit. Uh, in addition to um, just being fast, I also requires that all the fast tests uh, don't have any requirements on the machines they are being run on. So basically, my requirement is that a fast test has to run on every machine by every developer working on this product. And if he doesn't have, like, it, it even needs to run without any environment set up. So if there's no database or uh, no some service that your application uses, it can't be a fast test. Even if it's running fast, it needs to be a slow test. So even if you're like on a plane without internet on your friend's computer, you should be able to run the fast parts of your test suit. And like the slow parts, all these rules and regulations are dropped. And so it kind of encourages you to write the, more of the right tests because you now have a name for them. Those are fast and there are some rules for them and write less of the slow ones, which you still need, but kind of like gives you this moral feedback on what you're doing and if it's good or not as far as testing goes. That's interesting. Almost, it's almost like the difference between like fuzz tests versus uh, or smoke tests versus uh, integration tests. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like... Like smoke tests versus developer tests, I guess, in the pro world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I am like moving away from like being strict in the rules, like saying you can can't do any I/O. I'm basically saying make sure it's fast and runs on every machine. Like how you make that happen, I don't care. Like sometimes it's just really too annoying to follow the rules closely. Like sometimes you, well, for example, you want to load a list of files to decide what to do next, and like you know your file system is going to respond respond within 100 milliseconds. So it's like really annoying to have to mock this out, even though the results are very predictable, stable, and easy to understand. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why I'm coming up with this like fast and slow distinction. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's going to be fairly well suited to the, uh, to the, the NPAT thing, like using running, running tests on, on install of every module, right? So like in your, in your package.json test script, you probably just want to have the, run the fast tests. Um, or sniff yep. some kind of environment variable or something to see, so you can set a config and have that run your, your slow tests, which is what I do in some of my modules. Exactly, yeah, and the fast test would run on like any machines that you might ever set up for like testing NPN modules for everybody, because mm -hmm. they wouldn't depend on any environment other than, well, basically make sure all the Node APIs are working. Yeah. Well, and if, if the Node APIs aren't working, you've got other problems. Probably, or you're on Windows, which is not <laughs> ready yet. <laughs> Right, right. Um, yeah, so that's... I guess the last rule I forgot to mention is I, when you like run multiple tests in one file, you can't have multiple running at the same time. Because otherwise, if there's an exception, there's no way to know what, what is going on. So like, so test suit that I'm writing right now would like execute every test sequentially. Yeah, you which, know, works, which works fine for the test we have. Some other people might really need to... like. Paralyze their stuff. In that case, whiskey is really good. So doing I'm not, that right. I'm not completely sold on on the, the parallelizing tests. In in Node Tap, I um, I didn't even make that an option really. So, and I, I know that there are some cases, and and Espresso and whiskey kind of solved this fairly well. Where, you know, you're testing a website, and you're actually going to bring up your web app, and then 
test a whole bunch of routes and each one of those is doing I.O. and maybe hitting a database, like you need to do them all in parallel. And, and Expresso and, and Whiskey have, I think Whiskey does this as well. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I know Expresso has really good facilities in place to like, you know, basically let you run all of your tests at the same time and then it keeps track of which ones respond or violate the, the assumption. Um, for most of the stuff that I do though, like running tests in parallel just makes the output really confusing. Yeah, you know, there's no way to give like good real-time output, basically. Exactly. Like if something's lagging, I want to see exactly which test is lagging. When it throws, I want to get the, you know, I want to see them run in, or, in the order that I wrote them. Your which, test suit really shouldn't depend on the order. <laughs> well, it, it, it's um, helpful just to include colors.js. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, it should run in, um, it should run sequentially, not, I, I'm not saying it should depend on the order, but I also don't like shuffle the order intentionally. It just kind of right. happens that way because of that's how you, when you assign right. stuff to an object it, and then you read it off that object, it comes in the order that it, that it was put in. Um, sure. but the other, I mean, I actually, no, I think I do depend on the order sometimes because I'll actually define like the first test will actually be a setup. Um, and then you can define a teardown, which will run no matter what. So, you know, if a test fails, even if it bails out, it'll always run the teardown. Um, you know, unless you, unless, obviously, unless you tank the whole process, in which case, like, whatever, you got, like I said, you got other problems. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that kind of makes it an easy model. Um, so I see that somebody wrote Tame.js under the, under the patterns and practices, and I, I haven't... Um, I, I mentioned before, like I'm a big fan of their work in in the in the uh, online dating area, but not so much with this um, tame thing. Like, what what is Tame JS exactly? Is it just? It looks like just another fibers thing. Yeah, but it's basically like doing instead of like doing really crazy things to V8, it's doing uh, those fibers or coroutines, whatever you want to call them, in uh, userland. So it just like rewrites your JavaScript. So you, you write your JavaScript in a way that looks synchronous, but it really like does all the callbacks and stuff for it. Um, okay, it's a so good it's thing. Actually, yeah. So it's more like Streamline or something where it, it parses your JavaScript into other JavaScript that is asynchronous. Exactly. And so basically you don't have any of the problems with like coroutines where you would have to keep multiple stack objects going. Uh, it, it just loses trace of, of the stack when something goes to the event loop just as much as like any other node callback thing right now would. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure if it's a good idea or not, but I, I certainly think, like I've used it for a little toy project the other day where really all I had to do was synchronous or sequential I.O. So basically I was uh, writing a script to migrate some data from, from a server um, and like take a record, modify it, and then put it back in, and then do it in like batches. Uh, it would initially do like some setup, and then all of these things were running sequentially. So there was really nothing going on in parallel. And I, I was trying to do it with just like common node patterns and node async, but then I just, for the fun, rewrote the code with TameJS, and it came out much, much better. Um, mm. so, I'm, so I'm not saying it's a solution, but it's a, because there's other issues with it, but it's an interesting approach. I mean, one of the common really, complaints... Uh, my, my biggest, I, I think rather than, rather than write programs like that in, in JavaScript, I usually just write them in Bash. And that sounds a little bit crazy, but um, I found actually Bash has like, it has so many, so many facilities just so designed for, for juggling 
um, juggling I.O. and processes, it, when you don't give a shit about speed or parallelization or anything like that, you just want to like get something, then do something else. You're not in a hurry. You know, like I would never write a web server with it, but like, yeah, download some stuff, put it somewhere. I mean, these are, these are kind of nice, like it's kind of nice for that. Well, it depends on what you do. I mean, there's definitely more than a few legitimate use cases for Bash. Um, I think what it boils down to, in my particular case, I actually needed some domain logic for my application. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's huge then if you can paste in a function or something from your, or just yes. require that, that same module. That's nice. Yes. So that's where Bash would have failed me at this point. Um, but yeah, even even with like solutions like TameChess around, it's not perfect yet because, well, just like CoffeeScript, it doesn't really know how to make the output uh, source code have the same line line numbers as the stuff you give it. So with yeah. our already limited stack traces that we get, we now get additionally confused by wrong <laughs> line numbers. Yeah, now now the stack traces are lying. <laughs> they're not just they're not just lacking. They're they're actually wrong. Right, and, and the other thing too, though, is if you if you avoid libraries like that, you stay close to the metal, and you you really you really understand like a lot better what's happening with with the code that you're working with. You, there's there's less abstractions on top of it, which is something that I really like. I don't I don't like having a lot of different things that I'm not intimately familiar with in between me and 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 the actual. Uh, the code that's going on. I mean, ha having some of those abstractions sometimes can be nice if you're dealing with a really, really, really complex thing. But a lot of the time, this isn't a complex thing. It's it's just um, the the sort of general disdain for the callback style. You know, Paolo, I I'm inclined to agree with you, and like I make that same exact argument a lot of the time. But just to like just to play devil's advocate here, um, aren't we already like if if you were if you were a proponent of, of Fibers or, or a Streamline or TameJS or one of these or CoffeeScript or whatever, I mean, couldn't you just as easily say like, well, you're already on the top of a giant, giant mountain of abstraction. I mean, you've got, you've got this huge black box of, of V8 and, and probably to a lesser degree node. Right, right. But, th but then that, you know, that brings up the argument like, okay, well, you know, why don't we bring, write everything in assembler? I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of like, of, um, you know, reasoning that happens with like, okay, you know, some things are just too complex, you know, and some things are just the right amount of complex, you know. Yeah, so I, that, you find that sweet spot. So, so I think that the thing is not so much just that being close to the metal is necessarily a good thing. I think the actual complaint is much more, um, much more directed and personal, which is like that abstraction is actually bad. Like it's actually not helpful, and it doesn't provide the the number of um, uh, the kinds of facilities that do get you closer to an understanding of what's going on. Like you're, you're I mean, saying that the abstraction is bad when you you fake uh, or, or when you make um, like uh, callbacks not look like callbacks. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not so. I'm not necessarily saying that it's always going to be and always will be bad to make callbacks not look like callbacks. I think um, I took a look at at Marcel's um, fibers thing and the the uh, yields stuff and um, some of the generator stuff in ES ES Next looks kind of interesting, but yeah, it's it is a little bit weird that like you know you don't any anything that like takes takes your JavaScript and converts it to other JavaScript and doesn't preserve, um, you know, doesn't backwards map the, uh, the stack traces when there's an exception um, and kind of doesn't make it clear what's exactly going on there. It can be really weird, you know? It, and it doesn't really... Like, somebody actually... 
changing your JavaScript into, uh, into native machine code and then running it. But the difference is it's doing it on top of this big VM, which is like really fancy and provides you good introspection. And it, it could be better. And we still complain about that, you know? Right. Uh, somebody actually submitted a patch to, um, I think, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Firefox to where um, you, they, with uh, Spidernode, um, they had like full, full introspection. Um, and they, they sort right. of so solved that problem. There's, they have some kind of like annot, like line number annotation yeah. utility. So, so if there's, you, I think there's a proposal for it that is being discussed by all the browser vendors right now. Somebody, yeah. Came up with so, it. I think that that's kind of exciting for the like the two JS, um, you know, compiled to JS languages, language space. Um, Tens. Yeah, yeah, JS front ends or, or whatever. But um, I mean, without that, it's it's really awful. Right, like getting getting stack traces is really awful. I think um, if the if the line numbers are wrong, it, for me actually it's not so much a problem. Like I can live with a um, trade off for like basically if this converting language allows me to write code with less bugs, well I actually have to read less stack, stack traces. So if the stack traces are more confusing, well I kind of screwed myself there a little bit. But if I can produce more reliable code in general, well I, I'll take that trade off. I would use CoffeeScript for exactly that reason. Where it really like um, breaks my, my neck is unit testing. You can't really like write unit tests and constantly not know where to look, look next for fixing whatever test case is failing. Oh, you yeah. need those line numbers. When you're doing TDD, you're staring at yeah. stack traces all day long. Like yeah. that's, that's, stack traces now have become a development tool, not just a, a problem solving tool. Yes. I, I, th I think though to, to say something uh, sort of uh, positive, I guess, on the note of like language front ends. One, one thing that's kind of interesting about them and that's positive, um, I, I personally probably would never use um, any of these front ends in my production stack. But I would say though that that there's a positive thing that comes out of these, which is that um, they're they're kind of inspiring. I mean, you look at the stuff that Brendan Eich has said about CoffeeScript and and some 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 other front ends that have come out recently, um, and those front ends have in, definitely inspired um, the next version of JavaScript, which is something that we're all sort of going to at one point embrace more, more than likely. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think I mean the the thing with coroutines too is like it, when. When iterators and yields show up in JavaScript, if they ever do, um, if they're in V8, like, then they're going to start working in node programs. We're not going to actively remove them. Um, right. and, and if there's a way to make, node pro to make node core better by using them, then of course we will investigate it at that point. But like, yeah, this discussion, this discussion thread has just gotten so ridiculously out of hand. It's just one of these, <laughs> there's, like, there's like a couple of, I've noticed that there's a couple of topics that people will just like, never ever stop talking about and never make any progress on you know and and coroutines or fibers is, is just one of these it's like I, I don't know and I, I feel like I'm I feel like people sort of expect me to be the the pro callback guy and I am but um I would also kind of like to see some actually like real world examples of of comparing real code to callbacks and fibers and I, I I wanna make like one really important point before we close this discussion. Um and that is I don't really desire um those like additional language features. M most importantly right now is uh, um making 
stuff look synchronous. I don't desire some because it would allow me to write the node code much easier. It's, I find it easy enough to use the callbacks. But what really, really is hard is to refactor code. For example, if you go on the tamejs.org website and you look at the first two snippets of code, it shows like the difference between uh, a function that has this uh, like synchronous style where each, each thing is coming after the other compared to the callback style. And if you now imagine that you need to uh, reorder several statements, like the order in which they're executed, it's a nightmare with callbacks. I mean, my WinFu is getting stronger and stronger every day, but I have no hope of ever like automating the test of like taking a, a function callback and like moving it somewhere else and also getting the indention right for everything. And like basically you have to change 90% of the characters on the screen if you want to reorder some like nested callback stuff. And that's a real, real problem. Right now we're refactoring code and that's why it's so painful and I wish for these things. Like I can, so, it's not sugars that I want. It's really just like the ability to refactor stuff in a reasonable amount of time and with low error rates on the refactoring. I've actually I have, well, sorry, go ahead. about re refactoring, um, refactoring nested, heavily nested callbacks and um, like I'm sure Felix that the code you're writing is really awesome, but super, super deeply nested callbacks. I try I try to preach the uh, that people avoid them, and it actually hoisting the functions out and naming them, and then um, and then nesting them that way, so that way you don't get um, really really complex nesting is usually I think what when people when people start to see like really deeply nested callbacks in JavaScript, they sort of think, oh, JavaScript looks ugly. But the thing is, is like JavaScript actually never has to look ugly. I think it's just a matter of sometimes like you're, you're, you're on a thought process and like you're writing code and it's getting to where the point where it's working and suddenly you realize that you've done a bunch of nesting in the code. Um, and, and then refactoring, yes, can be complicated. But I think if you get used to writing um, callbacks <coughs> or you, you're not... Uh, nesting the actual definitions of them, you're just nesting the uh, the, the local references to them. The the end product is is much more portable and um, and much more uh, neat to look at. I, I agree with that in general, but I have to say that while I totally agree and I try to write my codes this way, I, it ends up needing more <laughs> boilerplate than I'm willing to tolerate from a, a dynamically typed language. If I want to write boilerplate, I'll go to like Scala or whatever and write the boilerplate for my types and everything and define things beforehand before I do them. Um, but I want to use a dynamic language because it, my programming mind works better with those. And if I have to write a lot of boilerplates, I kind of get thrown out of the flow a little bit. Um, I don't know, maybe it's a non-issue, but that's, I kind of think like it's a point where you're adding more like overhead in addition to like already the callback style, which requires you to type out a bunch of stuff, then it kind of gets a little ridiculous for JavaScript. Not too much, but just like slightly uncomfortable to be writing a lot of production code with. I think it's a proposal uh, that's that's actually passed in, in ES6 that uh, the function... Uh, well, actually, I, I think it's still up in the air. But but the, the verbose word function may be shortened, but I won't uh, start speculating on exactly how. <laughs> that's a conversation that's uh, still in debate right now. Somebody is asking who the other people are. Maybe we should do a quick reintroduction. Um, or, well, I, I'll just mention it. Isaac is on the call, who's doing NPM. And Paolo, who's at No Chitsu, and like also have millions of awesome NPM modules as well. Um, yeah, I think we discussed this plenty enough. <laughs>
No, no, we need to we need to bring this back up. Hey, okay. uh, have you ever used CoffeeScript? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I, you know I I don't I don't hate CoffeeScript. There's a lot of hatred for CoffeeScript. There's like three things I don't like about it, which is you know why it's I've not switched over to it, but. And and the stack trace thing is one of them, um, but no, I, I think it is interesting, and it's cool the way it's been sort of informing future JavaScript development. But uh, yeah, I, I would use I would use all of those all the time just for the fun of it if they fix the line number thing, and that's yeah. My Another kind of interesting one that I like even more than CoffeeScript, and actually I am a fan <coughs> of of some of the things that CoffeeScript does. I, I just like I said, I just wouldn't use it in my production stack because I don't think that it's viable. But um, what, something else that I think is interesting um, is uh, is um, something called caffeine, which is progressively enhanced JavaScript, which basically means that you know if you really like you know if the only thing you really like out of you know an experimental sort of sandbox thing like CoffeeScript is is the sort of like array comprehensions you could actually use um, you could actually implement that um, in, in caffeine and caffeine that would be the only thing that would um, that would be changing uh, uh, your your, your, it would still be compiled, but that would be the only addition to JavaScript, and the rest of it would be JavaScript. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah TameJS actually falls in the same category. It is an, uh, like it's super set of it's a super set of JavaScript. Right. Um, yeah, caffeine is also nice because you can actually disable individual features. Not only do you not have to like use them, right. you can right. actually say, "Hey, I want this." Syntax option and this and that, and it also has one of these like making asynchronous calls look sync things that looks really interesting. Uh, I played with it once. I actually was almost ready to like make the whole code base of Transloaded run on it, <laughs> and but I there were just pause errors because we have a lot of code, so crazy conditions occur. I think he was not using um, Aclify yet. Maybe it is now, um, but yeah, I couldn't get all files to go through it. And I didn't want to rename all my files and like individually, like depending on if this file works with caffeine or not. So <laughs> I haven't made the decision whether that's a viable future yet or not. <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, I think really a lot of these things don't don't necessarily solve a problem that I have. That might be why I don't care about them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for for me, like writing code with Node so far has been absolutely like the stuff we discussed earlier, like uh, the exceptions things and so on. There's problems like that Node could address, but um, with these things, it's really not so much like writing my Node code; it's um, refactoring it. Like right now, when I refactor, I notice like pain points that I hadn't noticed earlier, and that's why mm -hmm. those languages look more interesting. Um, well, you know, also a thing about that I've I found in in dealing with with a lot of this kind of stuff. And a lot of that refactoring stuff in NPM is like once once you go through that pain a few times, like once you refactor out a you know a hundred line long uh, nested function that goes in like four layers deep with callbacks and has like request and response objects going on and stuff, like the first time you have to deal with that, you go, oh my god, this is terrible, and you never ever write that code again because it just hurts so bad. And I think like. You, you really shouldn't be careful about sheltering people from that pain because I think that, that a lot of times that pain actually makes you write better code. Like you, yeah. you need to have that experience. You, you, can't just be, you can't just have somebody come in and tell you, don't do that because you'll still do it. Like you'll be like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll add one more line, whatever. It's no big deal. And 
next thing you know, the thing is really long and it doesn't, it doesn't trip your, your warning signals unless you've dealt with it. And then after yeah. the first time you deal with it, you never ever want to do that again. So it's, in a way, it's kind of nice. Like, I don't I, think that all I, pain is bad. Yeah, I agree. We, we don't have, like, it's, that's not our main problem. It's just one problem. We have maybe a handful of functions that go two or three level deeps, and that's the maximum. But yeah. we, we have, like, a lot of objects doing things that would really belong in a separate object. And so you still end up moving a lot of code around and, like, having the verbose uh, function declarations and, like, some nesting. The result handling is always a nested function. And moving, like, set to different functions is still... Far from ideal, but yeah, I, I agree I'd that. I love to get a shorter, a shorter keyword for the word function. Like, <laughs> yeah, just that, just that would would really make my life easier. I mean, I, I mean, I have autocomplete when I type it, and it's really fast. But like moving it around and like selecting where does function start and going until the like the brackets and stuff. I mean, maybe I need to like study them for another like six months in isolation. But it's hard. You're just blaming. You're blaming the victim, Felix. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It's it, it, no, it sucks. We all know it sucks. <laughs> it's it's just it's not the thing that sucks the worst. You know, the thing that that actually sucks the worst is like like designing your program, designing your application so that it can crash and you can know why. You know. Yeah, that is the thing that that is very tricky. Um, so what's, right. what's next on our our list of things here that we need to talk about? Oh, I gotta I gotta uh, give a give a little. Spiel here if if you guys don't have anything else to add about two JS languages, but um, Node Knockout is coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, what is Node Knockout? <laughs> Node Knockout. If you have not heard, you should go to nodeknockout.com. It's um, it's kind of like uh, it's like a two day two day hackathon where people uh, teams register and then they build an application in forty eight hours. And then winners are picked, and there are fabulous prizes in various categories. Um, so Joint, Joint is going to be releasing a, a, new, rev, a new revision of the uh, NO.DE service in time for that, um, for that competition. And uh, I think... I think it's also sponsored. Um, Nojitsu is actually sponsoring like a location, I guess. Paolo, do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, so we're um, at uh, 209 Broadway in Manhattan, and um, we have a uh, pretty large space here that's open to, um, to people that want to come down and, and hack with their uh, Node Knockout team. Yep, and of course the, um, the joint offices again this year are going to be... Uh, uh, going to be open around the clock for that um, in uh, San Francisco at 345 California Street. And I, I think that there are still there are still like people. I mean, if you if you have a team of of only two or three people and you you want a another another member, I know there's still some people looking for you know didn't make the cutoff for registration and are looking to join any teams that are registered. Yeah, I think if you go to the site at like midnight or something like that, it sh it like shows you like what kind of openings there are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, it's it's kind of exciting. I, I've uh, I've been I've talked to uh, Jared and, and Bisnu quite a bit about um, about what's coming up. Um, 
and they're they're really taking a lot of learnings from um, you know from last year, and so I think that's really interesting. You should see another another round of really interesting projects come up as as a result of that. Yeah, businesses too. I mean, there was a couple of um, uh, projects that went on to become uh, commercial um, enterprises after that, I believe. Yeah, I just recently saw. So one of the one of the most fun games that was built uh, was this this thing that was kind of like a Scrabble knockoff, but it would it would just kind of go forever. It was like an infinite Scrabble board, <laughs> um, and you you can only play off your own words. So people would just kind of collaboratively be exploring this board. Um, and that's actually now at wordsquared.com and, um, you can, you can play this game. I think they may even have some kind of, some kind of application for it or something, but it's, uh, it's really interesting. And then they have this little, uh, like a mini map that you can, you know, see all the other, explore the, the rest of this like giant board, which is growing in real time. I think the URL must be different. You can find it under, you said square, square word? Oh, wordsquared.com, somebody in the IRC Word, channel. Saying. Yeah, word squared with a D. Okay. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see uh, what comes out of uh, Knockout. I also have a team in registered, and we're going to work on some secret thing. <laughs> oh, cool. I am not going to work at, on anything for Node Knockout. I'm going to sleep and probably answer questions about NPM and deal with bugs, uh, oh. NODE bugs. By the way, questions. Yeah, I have questions. Like NPM seems to be going down a lot lately. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, so just to address that, there's a couple of things that happened um, relatively recently um, and are more or less unrelated. One of them is that I changed the way that the search works. And in the process of changing the way that search works, I, you know, I tested it on my local box and it worked great. And then I pushed the changes live and realized that it broke something. And so I had to roll stuff back. And so there's a little bit of you know, up and down right there. Um, and then the other issue is that, um, yeah, yeah, we, we get it. We get it, yes. There's, so there is actually a fallback server now um, that was just, just asked in the, uh, in the IRC room. So basically what I, I did was I set up the uh, admin. I have a, a backup copy of the registry database. And um, I just reviewed all the replication stuff. Like that is, that's going to be no more than, you know, unless there's some kind of serious problem, that's never going to be more than an hour behind. Um, even if the continuous replication fails, it'll actually bring it back up and, and start replicating again. Um, also, the, uh, uh, the C name, which currently points to iriscouch.com, can be, can be redirected. And so, you know, it's not quite as good as automatic failover. It's not doing any kind of, um, you know, detection or whatever, because I actually can't do that with my DNS provider. But, um, you know, there, there should be the, the bandwidth, the, uh, sorry, the downtime is limited to no more than five minutes after I change the pointer. So... Um, so that's kind of that's kind of good, and actually, uh, Jason Smith from from Iris Couch has been very very helpful with with all of this stuff that's happened. Um, mostly, it's been me breaking the database. There was a, an outage recently for a little while that was, I think, related to an EC2 outage, but I'm not exactly sure why. Um, since both of you guys are 
working on like node hosting services. I mean, I guess if you're deploying a bigger application, you should assume that NPM could sometimes go down. How, how do you guys like handle like deploying your application? Uh, do you guys depend on NPM working and just saying deploys are not possible right now if NPM is down? Or how does Join and Nojitsu handle this? So our, our plan <coughs> at Joint, um, basically our, our deploy script doesn't depend on the NPM registry being up. Um, if there are some dependence with the newer version of NODE that's coming out, if there is a, um, you know, if you have a dependency which is not already installed on your zone and the registry is down when you're doing a deploy, it will not be able to install it and the, and the deploy will fail, which is what you actually want, right? You want an error message, you want it to say, sorry, this didn't work, try again later, or whatever. I actually um, would, would, well, I guess the deploy failing is the second best thing, but ideally well, I want to deploy the, the even thing. if NPM is down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, you want it to work. But if, it, if failing that, you want it to not work. The thing that you really don't want is you don't want it to half work. Right? You don't want to, it's better to just not be able to push code than to be able to push code that's broken. Right. So um, people oh, are asking do you, do you, oh, people are asking. questions in IRC about, uh, <coughs> about mirroring NPM for your hosting service. Like, okay, <laughs> I, I actually do have a mirror of NPM let me just spell this out again. I'll just spell out the architecture. So I have a, a mirror of NPM running on admin.npmjs.org, which is also the web server that you go to if you want to reset your password. And it, it has some hooks into the database anyway, to the official database. Um, what I can do with, there's a, uh, there's a C name which points registry.npmjs.org to the official registry couch database, which is um, hosted and maintained by, by Jason Smith, who does a much better job of it than I would. Um, the other thing that I can do is I can change that C name to point over to the replica. Um, there's a 300 second TTL, so it would take five minutes or so, uh, you know, less than an hour though for the, for the DNS propagation to go through. So, you know, it can be fixed very, very, very quickly if it goes down. Um, and because there's, it's replicating and CouchDB is really good at that, um, you know, we can always just point it back at the other one and that'll keep working. Um, there, what you, what you can do is you can set the, uh, you can set the NPM config to point over to the replica couch DB or to your own replica that you use. And all of that is, is pretty well explained in, uh, NPM help registry. But for the most part, uh, it should just work. The, the issue with deploying on NODE, once, there's, uh, once it is automatically pulling in your NPM dependencies, it'll actually just install each thing once because you, you really don't want to have to install them over and over again since it's already isolated and effectively local uh, to a single application. What we really want is a global install and, and then link in those, those dependencies into your application. Yeah. One, one other... Um Problem, I, I guess that's, I don't know if you guys will address it, but like you mentioned that if NPM is down, you're just going to say the deploy didn't work. Well, this works great if you're deploying to one machine, but if you're deploying to a cluster of multiple machines, well, the first few machines may manage to get their update in and now NPM breaks. And well, now you're left with a few machines like who have the new packages deployed and a few who haven't. Um, that's certainly a problem for us. Um, but I, I guess with NODE and 
I don't know what Nojitsu does. You you guys are mostly deploying to one machine for one customer at this point, or uh, yeah. So, oh, you want to talk about the Nojitsu? So, sorry, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, uh, finish uh, the thread. It's a good one. So, um, currently, NODE is you know one application, one one uh, one zone. You push your stuff into it, and that's it, right? Um, eventually, we would like to get up to a, and I, I can't. I don't want to talk too much about this because I, I don't like making promises I can't keep. Um, or, or at least I, I don't like making promises I don't end up keeping. But um, we, we would like to get to a much more uh, node-ish and, and kind of distributed approach. But um, yeah, eventually what we're going to do is basically, my, my plan anyway at this point, which is kind of very hazy, is like when you push, it's going to try to get your dependencies. If it already has them, it'll just use those. If it needs to get something from the registry, it'll try. Um, if that fails, then it fails. Then what it does is it takes all that stuff, bundles it up with your application, and sends that out to all of your zones. So what it's actually sent, what it's actually deploying onto the zone, won't be uh, onto the NODE instance. Won't be something that ever has to hit the registry. It'll be a fully, uh, a fully, you know, encapsulated thing. Okay. So well so you still do have this single point of failure where if you if you push something and it can't find its dependencies, then it will break. But it's it's in such a way that you still end up with all of your zones in synchrony in in synchrony um, uh, in the same you know whatever with the same stuff on them. So there's nothing like that right now. I mean, it's still kind of rudimentary. Hey, while you mentioned that. That's something we also explored doing, um, but I, I think I have a feature request for npm if it doesn't exist already. Is there a way to just like say, look in my node modules fo folder and recompile all um, uh, packages that need compiling? Is there's that a library possible? for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a uh, I think I think it was Index Zero wrote a library called Require Analyzer. It's pretty awesome. Uh, goes it it actually um, it's sort of like. Uh, hijacks your require statements and figures out like what the dependencies are, um, like when it runs the program to do that, and then basically grabs everything and and builds up your um, builds up your JSON packet or package JSON. So that way, um, when you go to to uh, look at what kind of references you had, it, it'll, it'll it'll already be built up for you. Well, so that's how not, not how quite what I'm. Uh, sorry, Cody. Go ahead. Um, so, so Felix, just to get just to get an idea of your your feature requests, like you want to say, look at everything that's in Node modules. Yep. And, and if it needs compiling, compile it again. And I'll, I'll explain why it needs this. Um, with Amazon and their also sweet promise of like uh, deploying in an environment where you no longer purchase hardware but you purchase cloud capacity, um, they actually give you different machines, even if it's the same machine type. And that can go as far as giving you uh, different CPUs with different features. So if you actually yeah. were to like compile your stuff on another machine and then bundle it up and submit it to all your machines, well, guess what? On some machines, it's going to fail because it's, it's the library you're using is using some CPU-specific features, and now everything is broken. Um, and that's why oh. I would need to be able to push out like, the compiled package, but then recompile it on every machine, like yeah, all so the what you modules. So what you what you want to do is uh, add them to your bundled dependency list, and then on the target machine, um, run npm rebuild. And what that will do is go through and and rerun the builds command for every um, for every package in your node modules folder if it has one. 
Okay, so that already exists. Awesome. Yeah, you can also do npm rebuild and then give it a package name, and it'll only rebuild that particular dependency. Um, yeah, binary modules are like a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, they are. So that's why we, we don't have any right now, but we, we will have some, I guess, in the future. Yeah. Um, Paolo, you also, what, what, I think what you were about to mention is that uh, at Nojitsu, you guys actually don't require people to write a package JSON for their application. You're like, we can auto detect this for you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, um, when, yeah, when, yeah, sorry, I, I didn't quite catch all of your, your question, Isaacs, but, um, but yeah, that's what we do. Um, we, we, we pretty much, um, you can write one, but we double check it for you basically when you run your program. When you do the deployment, um, it double checks everything to make sure you have everything before you deploy it um, using Require Analyzer, which is kind of useful. Um, it's, you can use it outside of our, um, our platform as a service, of course. Um, it's available on our Nojitsu um, GitHub. Um, while we're talking about NPM, <laughs> um, I had actually talked with you, Isaac, a little while ago about. Um, about a, a mechanism for being able to to determine what kinds of npm packages were um, the, or determine the quality of them, um, some sort yeah. of feeding system of some sort, and we 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 exchanged like a bunch of ideas on that. Um, and I know that you had that some somewhere in the roadmap. I wasn't sure exactly where it was, but you had some great ideas for that. Yeah, so I would like to I would like to do a few different things. Um, And uh, uh, among them are, you know, getting getting tests that uh, that get reported back up to a central server. I think would, is going to be really really huge, um, and also is going to make a lot of people's a lot of uh, module authors' lives a lot easier. You know, so you can kind of tell which which bugs matter and which bugs don't, and like where things failed, and and get this all in nice kind of easy reports. And then when you're trying to decide which module to use. Right, the ones that have tests and have tests that pass, and have tests that pass in your environment, you know that's that's really what you want to know. If I see even if and because ultimately, like even if I see a module where, um, you know, its tests always fail in Linux and FreeBSD, but like I'm only going to deploy on Solaris and macOS, well, I, that's great, right? Because it's they're all passing there, and and so, you know, or vice versa, if they work in Linux but they don't work on Mac, uh, or some tests don't like. You can kind of decide which, if you can break them down by that, you can make decisions based on, on that information, which is really, really useful. Yeah, um, and also, like, mo most module authors will not be able to, like, set up environments with all platforms themselves. So getting, like, reports like this automatically for their package would be really, really sweet. Yeah, I, I would personally love it, right? I, I have a bunch of modules on NPM, and some of them actually get used by, by people. Um, <laughs> And occasionally I get these bug reports that like, I, I really have a hard time figuring out. Um, and I, I know for every one of those bug reports, somebody just tried it and then decided it didn't work and so moved on. You know? <laughs> so, um, so that would be one thing. And that's, that, that whole pattern has, has been proven really, really well in the Perl community and, and works really well. It, it kind of leverages the, uh, you know, the social goodwill in a way that it's, it's hard to get people to do otherwise you know one of the things that we also talked about was like the the overall grading being like a heuristic that was based on uh you know a number of different things like important right important things to quantify like what why something was a good package so like one of those things was um and maybe you can talk about it a little bit but npm tap 
Oh, uh, node tap. Yeah. No, sorry. Node tap. Yeah. So in part of this, in part of my plan to, uh, to test every node program and expose that data, um, I'm, I've, I built a, a, a test anything protocol reader and writer and generator thing called node tap. And it, it also has a, uh, on its own, it's just a, a test framework. Um, but it also has a, a test harness that will, you know, consume and produce tap output. And then the, the plan is to have the server actually take that, that data and pull out, try to pull out, you know, which, um, specifically which assertions passed and which ones failed and so forth. So, yeah, and, um, and it's, a, it's a cool thing with uh, tap is like, there's a lot of like tool chains for that. For example, Jenkins, a uh, continuous integration server has like a plugin that can then analyze and give you statistics on the historic output of your like test failures. Right, right, exactly. Um, there's, I mean, once we kind of start getting that data, there's a lot of very interesting things we can do with it. Um, and tap is kind of, I mean, sure, JSON is nice and YAML is nice and all these other things are great. And there's a lot of tools that produce and consume all of them. But the nice thing about tap is it's actually a, a data format specifically for test output. It's, it's been, you know, proven to have everything you really need. Um, and there are a lot of CI tools that, that work with it. So it's, it's a really nice thing to use. Um, so the, the next step there is to build the thing that actually receives this data and processes it. The next step after that is to start, you know, twisting, twisting arms to get people to make their, te their test outputs um, produce tap. Their test harnesses <laughs> produce tap. I'll, I'll definitely um, add it to my new fast or slow thing that's on my to-do list. Yeah, it's, it's really not that hard. Um, the, the tap framework itself, I need to rework a bunch of things that are kind of weird and wonky with it. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, in the internals of like the test and the harness classes, but the stuff that actually just produces tap output, really straightforward. I mean, it, you just feed it in objects and it spits out strings and you pipe that string to standard out and now you're tap compliant. Nice. Yeah, I already have infrastructure in place to have like different reporting uh, like facilities. So I just need to plug it in. Um, so, uh, oh yeah, so about quality. The other, the other thing that we were talking about was like an I use this button. So what, right. I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to be able to have people go onto the, um, you know, NPM website or something and um, then be able to log in with your NPM username and uh, click a button that says I use this module. Then later, if somebody else is looking for modules, they can say, like, show me all the modules that Felix uses. And, um, you know, and then actually build like a little bit of a, a a, you know, author page, which shows everything you've written and everything you use. And, you know, somebody can kind of assume if you've written a lot of good modules that you probably know what programs are good. And, you know, they can kind of tell like, well, if, you know, if Substack, I, I know I use Browserify and I use Dnode and, and I use Bunker and all everything else Substack does. So <laughs> if he uses this other module that was written by this Felix guy I've never heard of, well, it's probably really good, right? Because he knows what, I, what he's doing. And so you can kind of leverage that, like, um, that sort of trust network. And I think asking people to, like, I think, like, a vote up or vote down button actually kind of encourages bad behavior. Whereas saying, I use this, and then actually attaching it to your, to your username, there's no yes or no. I mean, there's no up or down aspect to it. It's, 
pretty much a, a, an assumed up only type of boat. I, I and, think that's a good idea. Yeah, and you, you leverage like you leverage like you know this kind of web of trust approach. Um, so, so, so I that's think on the so roadmap, like you. So you were talking about having like you know a heuristic that encompasses like a bunch of these different things. So you have like you have like um, like I don't know te- like ten or fifteen different things that metric, and then what, it makes a percentage possibly. Um, yeah. So then it would give you it would it would you know work out to some kind of score between zero and a hundred, where zero is like you know a package.json with no tests that doesn't install properly, and uh, and a hundred would be like. You know, something that's really has a lot of votes for it, and like anything that Substack makes, and so on. Um, I think, yeah, both those things. <laughs> I I think I would. Well, I, I always think like once like the calculation becomes non-trivial, I, I would prefer not having an algorithm that like kind of ranks it. I think usually, I mean, you, how are you going to look for a module? You're going to do a search, right? So you're going to type in, I'm looking for, uh, I don't know, MySQL module. And what I want to see in the output is not what like the algorithm thinks is like the module with a rating of 90 because it's I, I don't really I can't really pause that until I click on it. I think I would rather see like simple uh, information. For example, GitHub watchers is one metric, and then the other is like from the people I added to my I guess follower list, people I follow on npm. I want to see which are using that, and depending on their followers, it should be ordered. So if like what I follow this guy Isaac, and he has like nine million followers. So now I want to see his name first in the list of like people mentioned. Isaac uses this as well. One of, one of the problems with that though is like that there's that there's a, there's actually a number of like really sort of novelty um, like repos out there that have like tons and tons of watchers like Vapor JS uh, <laughs> or like or whatever. Yeah. Like those are good things, but they give false positives, right? Also, well, that's and that's really the problem. That's why you need your heuristic to be very, um, you know, to cover a lot of different angles. Because there's also the issue of of uh, that you have to watch out for, which is like cyclical promotion, right? Where um, you know there can be a module that's not very good, right? But let's just say it's the first one in a particular area, and so it's it's like the first. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, MySQL is not a good example because we actually have a couple of different, relatively good MySQL modules. But let's just say, you know, I wrote. Let's say that, that it was back in the day, and there's no Node MySQL module, and um, and I write one, and it's crap, right? But it's it's better than writing your own. So a lot of people start using it, and they all click the "I use it" button. Um, there's a lot of watchers on GitHub because it's the only one that you can use for this. And now somebody says, "Okay, well that thing is crap. I'm gonna." Uh, I'm going to write my own, and they write a much, much, much better one. It has to be. It has to be at least like possible for that to rise up and, and overtake. You know what I mean? And yeah. sort of become the the new winner in that in this heuristic. Whereas if you're always sorting by by quality, what's going to end up happening is somebody's going to be the one. You know, somebody's going to see that this one has a 90 and that one has a 50, and then they're going to click on the the one that's more you know battle tested, even though it might actually not actually be better. So the, the real challenge is like figuring out how, to act, how do we as humans tell whether or not a module is better. If we, if we knew everything, that, if we had access to all the code and all the tests and we knew everything about it, like how would we determine that it's worth using? And then somebody, how much of that can we codify into, into math? Somebody in the uh, channel mentioned 
uh, Apache Mahood, um, which I guess is a machine learning tool. So I guess it means our discussion will turn into a machine learning discussion eventually. Yeah, I, having having robots learn which ones are better is is probably probably good. Um, I would also like to look at the uh, you know whether it, whether it has a GitHub issues page or some public bug list, and then how how frequently do bugs get closed? Yeah, that's a good metric. Um, versus you know how how active is the author in that in that bug list? How many messages get posted per day or or whatever? Like how how big is the community using it? And I think you know if you look at like. Um, I would actually maybe make responses more of an indicator because like so, sometimes I'm like, yeah, this is a problem, but only you will have this problem, so go ahead and fix it if you, if you like because <laughs> I don't have the time right now. And I, right. I think that's still good because like, so also like refuse and is active, but like, I mean, it's open source. People are, should also contribute themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so Aaron in the Aaron Blahowiak mentioned like, doesn't that reward buggy software? And uh, it, it kind of does. But I mean, if you look at, um, I think that size of the community is certainly something that, that matters when you're, when you're evaluating software. Um, if I was using MongoDB, then you know, I would, the first one I would try would be Mongoose simply because that's the one that everybody seems to use. You know? And okay, maybe, maybe it doesn't work for my purpose, for my specific use case of Mongo um, in some way that it makes no sense for them to fix. And so I go and I use a different one. But you start your search where, there's, where everybody is already kind of active. Um, and like GitHub followers and watchers is not necessarily as good an indicator as the number of different people who have posted some kind of issue and had it resolved. Um, but it also tells you how mature a software is. Like if you, I don't know. There, we could we could go about this like for years and years and years. And, and right. Uh, I mean, so. yeah, it goes on forever. You could like include how many contributors does this project have and so on. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, bottom line, it doesn't need to be perfect, right? It doesn't need to actually, that heuristic is a heuristic. It doesn't need to be correct 100% of the time. Um, it just needs to be correct more often than not. And then, I mean, the, then the trick is like, how do you communicate it such that the, the horde of people all kind of go where they ought to go? Rather than just, you know, ca causing snowball effects. Somebody's mentioning the ELO rating system, which I believe is used for chess. That actually might be worth looking into before coming up with a crappy re-implementation of what smarter people have come up with before. I don't know if it would apply, so. No, I, I, really, like, um, I really like taking stuff that's been done by other people and then just completely disregarding it and, and doing it broken <laughs> the bad way. No, no, because it's like, because if, if you read a really good program, I mean, that's like reading the end of a, of a mystery novel. Right, I mean, isn't that the fun? Is like like making all those mistakes and figuring out how awful it is. Yeah, isn't there? I, I was Nobody, just thinking about. I was just thinking about this the other day. There's this like statement that where I don't know. I'm paraphrasing. Every considerably complex program uh, contains a buck written and slow reimplementation of common Lisp. And half of common Lisp. Yeah, that's our half uh, of common Lisp. And people also like say that about Erlang. And you could say like that. No chess is such a like re-implementation of Erlang. <laughs> <laughs> we just need pattern matching. Uh, pattern matching is the one feature of Erlang that I really, really <laughs> would love to have in JavaScript. Somebody should write a, a, Java, a JS front end that just adds pattern matching. <laughs> that, that could probably be done uh, in like one of these cute languages, right? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I, you could probably implement it pretty easily with caffeine, actually. 
Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, I'd have to. I'd have to do that though. I think I'll just keep <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's Morris's rule after Robert Morris, the uh, Pete Paul Grant's buddy. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, I don't know. I think. I think there there is something to be said for like people. People really don't. Um, don't always appreciate stuff when it's handed to them on a platter. Sometimes it's good to it's good to work for it. Things wrong. <laughs> All right. We haven't really like taken any questions from like the IRC room yet, have we? IRC people, what should we talk about? All right. Somebody's asking Maybe. for a um, a shout out for nkohq.eventbrite.com. So if you go there, nkohq.eventbrite.com, you can register at the joint headquarters for Node Knockout. And that is from Friday, August 26th until Sunday, August 28th. So somebody asked about the pattern matching. Um, I think what we mean by Erlang's pattern matching is that basically you have like a switch statement, but instead of just being able to pass like strings and numbers into the cases, you can say like it's an instance of this or something, right? Well, not even uh, in Erlang. I don't know that there is instance of, but there's. Um, but what you can do, let's say you get an object as an argument, and that object might have uh, an error member, which means it was an error, and that error member will be some string. Yep. Or it can have a message member, and then that message will be some message from something, right? And if you can imagine, this is some like a a couch response or you know something like that, some JSON object you're getting from somewhere. What you could do is actually have switch and then case, open brace, error, uh, and then an underscore to indicate that you don't care what the thing is. And now if the thing has an error member, it will it'll run in that case. Otherwise, then you have another case which is message underscore. And what that means is that if it's if it's run in the if it just had a message but it didn't have an error, then it'll run in that other case. And so Everything that happens in Erlang, you, you can actually define functions that, you know, that take, uh, take arguments that are a particular pattern, and then it'll assign it to that if it matches. Oh, um, so okay. It's, it's so it's not like, just like for the switch statement. It's also for like function signatures. Yeah, it's also for function signatures, for if blocks, for, for everything. Nice. Um, it's deeply, deeply integrated into the language, and it's basically like array comprehensions on, on steroids. You know, array and object comprehensions on steroids. So that you know, the comprehensions is another thing that you can do with it. If you have a function that returns an object, um, you you know, returns a tuple or a list, you can automatically assign the the members to variables inside your function by by encapsulating them in that kind of encapsul in that kind of a uh, uh, object comprehension style. And yeah, I mean, everything uses pattern matching. There's, it's, it's actually, I mean, like most things in Erlang, it's like they took a really great idea and then just went hog wild with it and decided that this is the thing you use to do everything and it gets kind of obnoxious in some cases. Um, like, like Perl with regular expressions? <laughs> no, no, way worse than that. <laughs> uh, like Perl if there was nothing but regular expressions. Okay. But like, <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that being, that's, and that's my opinion, right? This is all, I, I don't, I, I get so, I get so, this, like holy wars are so freaking tedious, but um, 
in my opinion, like it, it gets a little bit of a chore sometimes. Um, but that being said, for like switch statements and object comprehensions and, and stuff like the pattern matching, really, really nice. It's a cool feature. All right. More questions. Maybe everybody's asleep already. <laughs> I think so. Certainly. Uh, so somebody had asked Sorry, go related up above here. Yeah, stuff about uh, about NPM stability. Okay, so uh, Mape asked if we should have a uh, a pro NPM repository with guaranteed up uptime for just a small cost. And I I would love it if anybody wanted to do that. I will I will highly recommend your service. I am never ever going to do that. That is a awful job. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably also like solving the problems the wrong way. I think if if as, I as people has, have mentioned, like we like you guys as like node services will obviously solve this problem for your customers and already like work on it. And but for people like doing it themselves, I think the real solution will be to just like take a build server that like runs your test suite and once that passes, like updating npm modules is part of it. It kind of like takes your code, uploads it to each server, and then runs the npm. NPM rebuild thing on for each machine. So I think it's yeah, a yeah. proper solution, right? Well, and that's um, at Joint, we don't have this problem of, of not knowing what the architecture is. <laughs> Good for you guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think I think running a pro NPM registry though, like that is that would be like one step away from sleeping on the street. For me, <laughs> I, I would I would do that if I if I really was just hard up and the economy had tanked and there was nothing I could do. I, nobody would hire me. Uh, if, I, if I managed to piss off Joint and No Jitsu and everybody else, um, yeah, I, I would do that rather than sleep in my car. Um, we like <laughs> we've actually been experimenting with trying to um, deploy some really pretty complex applications to our. Um, to our to our cloud, um, as everybody knows, we're about to go public beta, um, and uh, we've actually been talking about um, like doing private npm repos and uh, hosted uh, npm repos, and um, we've done some similar kinds of stuff, and it's actually been uh, incredibly uh, successful. Um, so I think it's so really. Do you, do you actually run? Do you actually run a separate npm repo for each zone, or do you just have one for all of Nojitsu? No, we actually. Um, so we we basically um, we do cloud aggregation. So if someone's an in infrastructure provider, we basically like take all of the infrastructure providers and we we sort of aggregate them. So basically, you know, if you're hosted on. Um, Giant, or if you're hosted on Amazon, or wherever you're hosted, um, basically we 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 allow we deploy an intelligence to that um, to that particular infrastructure provider, and it keeps track of what's going on. So um, so you know if something goes down inside that um, specific area, um, we're able to bring it back up uh, pretty easily. So um, one one of the things that we were looking at was being able to. Um, to give individuals um, the ability to deploy things like that and then have their services, their, their applications leverage it. So in a way, that is kind of the, um, the pro NPM uh, repository. It's just that you, know, you would choose <laughs> to deploy it uh, yourself, and you know, we, we don't really keep track of that kind of thing. But um, pretty it's much not like... It's hard to run your own registry. I mean, it, it really, really isn't. It's really not. I mean, right now. So why is it down all the time? <laughs> Just kidding. 
Well, we're we're going to be having a feature which basically allows people to to just do almost a you know, single click deployment of like Couch or um, Redis or any any of these um, you know any of the the popular um, databases that we like. Um, and uh, one of, one of those things is, I mean, really, you know, it's a, it's a very similar thing. I mean, npm is is Couch DB, so um, so it's it's really not that different from that. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, I, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I can tell you that the, the registry hasn't, it's been down, like, it went down for a, a couple hours um, a few days ago because I broke something and didn't realize it. Um, and then it went down again uh, a couple days later because of the CC2 outage. But, like, you know, whatever. It, none of them were all that bad. I think they were just in, in rapid succession and from different causes, but from the external world, it's just like, why does NPM go down all the time? Like, there's no single answer to that. <laughs> I, I was trolling, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay, I get, I get trolled. I usually, I usually can tell, like, I, I roll out of bed in the morning and I look at my phone and if there's like 30 or more new emails, it went down. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, actually what Paolo mentioned, uh, having private NPM uh, repositories or modules, that is really interesting. We would like to have that as well. Yeah, that's, I'm going to... I'm gonna be cool. We have something somewhat like that in, in, our, uh, in our builds, but most of our stuff is so low level anyway. We just, we just kind of pull everything out of our Git repos. Um, yeah, I think the only thing that I would consider it for is like our... Uh, video encoding secret sauce stuff. I would like to move that out in a separate module, and that's like a part of our service that's, that we are not comfortable sharing. But everything else yeah, we open source. The the techniques for doing that are pretty straightforward. Um, like I said, uh, npm help registry will tell you all about that. Yeah. By the way, I have a tip for people who want to like work on their applications locally while npm goes down. Um, if you like, you can't reach the npm registry, and you want to update a module or install it, uh, find it on GitHub, clone the repository, and then do npm install and pass it to local pass. Or if you want to be extra clever, you can like use the GitHub download tarball URL and pass that to npm install. Or in the next version, you can do npm install and give it a git URL. Ooh, nice. Yep. Now that would actually be like private npm repositories for us. Uh, kind of. Once I once I fix this issue that you found with um, save not saving the right thing. Yep. Um, basically, any URL that you can pass to Git, as long as it, uh, in order to differentiate between HTTP Git URLs and Git URLs with um, uh, with Git colon slash slash, you have to do the Git plus HTTP colon slash slash. And uh, this is going to be in the next version of NPM. It's not, it's not live yet. But, um, and then if you want to specify a specific commit, you can do uh, a pound and then the, the remote reference. So you could you know, fix it to, uh, to a specific commit or to a tag or to a branch or whatever. It's, that's very good because like me, I'm, I'm sometimes even with myself, I'm not so good like packaging... Um, Oh, somebody's asking my service is down? Hmm. No, it's not. Tell me more about it, sir. <laughs> um. <laughs> does it does it look funny? 
Oh, it kind of yeah, looks I, funny to me. <laughs> yeah, there's no uh, there's no CSS. Yeah, oh, which yeah. <laughs> I don't see it. I'm not looking. Wow, that's embarrassing, guys. <laughs> no, this is like the version. It loads really fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's some like speed oh, built hours. Uh, com cannot be found. And it looks yeah. like that's where it's the CSS from. Yeah, yeah. We we while we were talking, we lost our main database servers server due to like some failure and it was replaced right away. But I think our Kevin is working on some issues right now. Don't look at this. I see. It's all perfect. <laughs> I think only the CSS is affected right now. He's fixing it. Okay. Um, I think we had a question, or do we have anything left on this? Oh, yeah. Like so um, somebody brought up the uh, that we should mention the require paths is now gone in uh, 0.5. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I, I, oh God. I think so the weird. only, I think Cloudhead was really unhappy with that. So. He, was, he was super <laughs> unhappy. And you know what? He's wrong. He'll realize <laughs> later at some point that he's wrong. I, I've been wrong about a lot of things. I'm not trying to say anything. He's probably been wrong about fewer things than me, but this is one thing that he's definitely wrong about. Um, so just the other day, I, I, I looked at a new Node program, which shall remain nameless. Um, first thing, and I'm just this is not an uncommon thing, right? You, you say, oh, I don't want to have the dot slash and the dot JS and all this crap in my require stuff because it's really obnoxious. I just want to do require blah. Okay. So I opened up this, this dude's program. There's like 10 require statements, which are all absolute URLs. And then it just starts doing stuff. It wasn't even assigning them because it was like going to a, a global variable, which is like totally an excusable mistake, right? Because that's, that's how JavaScript has always worked. If you're a JavaScript guy, you probably don't even realize that that's a thing. Um, but yeah, then trying to figure out where a method gets defined is almost impossible, you know, because it's like, well, you've added four different paths to your require paths thing. So when you do require some file name, like if I'm reading your code as an outsider, I have no idea what's going on. And so we talked about this a while, a while back. This is a much, much bigger problem uh, with npn 0.x. There's also this rat's nest of, uh, of symlinks. And Ryan was like, let's just get rid of the global path altogether. And so I kind of push back a little bit on that, and, and we ended up uh, sort of discussing slash fist fighting over it. And uh, not, not really, there was no fist involved, but eventually came to this point where, okay, we're going like, to eventually deprecate, deprecate zero dot, or the, the require paths, we're going to tell everybody in the docs not to use it, and then in 0.5 we'll make it actually throw. And so that's where we're at now. You cannot use require.paths in the future. Like, it's gone, it's not coming back. And actually bringing back, I, I'm at the opinion now, I kind of explored a few things to try and bring back some of that functionality, but in a more safe way that isn't, you know, going to affect everybody else's programs. The problem is it, it, it makes your code more readable to you, but less readable to the rest of the world. And like, you don't have any problems reading your code. You don't need to make it any easier. Um, the typing overhead is, is tiny. I mean, just put like dot slash in front of your thing or dot dot slash. Whatever. I, I think the only real problem right now um, is if you want to require um, some some uh, file from another module that he doesn't export through his main JavaScript file, like some utility stuff he's using internally, and you think it's cute, you want to use it yourself, then you can't do that right now. I mean, you guess sure probably you could do. You just, you just specify the path to it. You do like you know require 
uh, MySQL slash lib slash something or other. If oh, it's that, in your node modules path, it'll still find it. Oh, I didn't know that. No, no yeah, that. Yeah. I thought it would only find the main module. Cool. It only, it only finds the main module if you just do require package name. But that package name is actually just a folder. So, you know, you can dive right in there. Okay, then ignore me. That was, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm super, super happy that that's, that that's going away. Somebody asked a pretty interesting question. Um, uh, Windows NPM support. Uh, Aaron? Yeah, so that's going to be my, my, my rough, uh, this is not a promise, expectation of when that's going to be done is probably sometime by Christmas. It'll um, be a Christmas gift to the Node community. <laughs> yes, that will, be, that will be my Christmas gift to the Node community, which may come in January or February. Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how hard it is and, and how much time I can, I can manage to uh, stand using Windows. I don't think uh, Windows Windows community has ever really had much interaction with package managers. So when they get it, they'll um, they'll be pretty excited, I'm sure. Well, I think I think Pip and Ruby gems work on Windows, right? They just use whatever. I mean, it's not like Python or, or Ruby work all that great on Windows as as much as Node is going to, but or ho hopefully will. But um, yeah, I don't remember. You know, when I was doing Windows stuff, we I didn't install stuff <laughs> from package manager. You download an MSI. Right, and then, and then you have DLL conflicts, and you shoot yourself. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm getting the first bug reports for like my modules on Windows. It's usually just like for forward slash versus backward slash, or me assuming that the local file system has like slash TMP or something, which is a given on most Nix platforms. But it seems like yeah. the Windows people like the, there's actually the Windows community is coming in and like playing with Node on Windows actively. It's like some mm -hmm. new 05. So, um, yeah, so some, some gotchas if you're used to writing a lot of Unix code that I found. Um, the path is semicolon instead of colon separated. Like all of those, you know, pa the path environment variable and like the node path and everything has to be colon separated. Um, will the module system translate file paths and require? Yes, it actually already, the module system already works, should work with uh, uh, Windows paths because basically, so there was this older function on the path object called path.join, uh, path which just takes and you give it a bunch of arguments and it joins them with forward slashes. And then it also does like handles the dots and the dot dot and everything like that. Um, however, in order to make that work properly on, uh, on Windows, Bert Belder, actually one of the first things he did in Node was go through and make all the path stuff uh, cross-platform. So there's a different function called path.resolve. Um, path.resolve, you can give it a, a root and then as many parts as you want, and it will, it will resolve them. Um, and if you don't give it a root, it'll just resolve against the current working directory. And in Windows, this is kind of complicated. But the long and the short of it is use path.resolve. It's better. Um, and then I guess the only other thing is like instead of slash temp, use the tempter environment variable. And maybe, and then if that's not set, then use slash temp. But that'll that'll get you out of most problems. You need. Uh, go ahead. Uh, do you have anything to add to this? Otherwise, I was going to go to the next question. 
Um, yeah, so uh, people usually seem to ask when they ask when is Windows going to NPM going to work on Windows, they ask like why, you know, why not right now? Um, the node on Windows is kind of still coming along, right? There are some big pieces that still kind of need to be more more fully fleshed out. Um, child processes just recently landed, I believe, and um, and Ryan has moved over to work on the the GYP stuff to to be able to build with Microsoft Visual Studio, which is awesome. Um, but I also need to look at using um, batch files instead of symlinks for the, the bins, and that should be relatively straightforward. And then, yeah, and then just months of cursing and figuring out what's wrong and fixing one little thing after another. So what was the other question? Um. The next question in the list was asked by Stride, and he's asking, "Do you guys use Node for non-web development much?" I don't. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh. I have one cool <laughs> I, use case. Um, I, I used to have troubles getting up in the morning, and everything I tried failed. And I finally used Node.js to solve the problem um, by building me, myself an alarm clock. That uses um, the air tunes, air placing from on OS 10, and in the morning, what actually happens? There's a node script that on the night before scheduled my machine to wake up at the desired time, and then it starts up a child process for, uh, using Video Land Player VLC, and it uh, passes its uh, name of the song to play, and then it actually plays that song on like speakers installed installed in my bedroom but they're at a proximity to my bed that I can't like reach them or turn them off. So I actually have to get out of my bed, walk into a different room and like turn it off on the computer. And that's what really like made a huge difference in me in terms of like getting up in the morning. So yeah, nice. we use no chairs for that. There's a, there's a bunch of really interesting ap applications for it. I mean, like that, I think that's one of the, the biggest um, uh, sort of misconceptions uh, is that it, it's really pretty much like most people end up just programming on port 80 um, and like there's so many more things that can be done um, for instance uh, uh, I I was um, using node heavily at MIT while I was there I uh, just actually two days ago uh, left um, no longer working there uh, part-time but um, one of the things that they were doing there with it was to automate uh, refrigeration systems for samples, um, which was a really fun project, actually. I worked on that um, a bit. Uh, and uh, it was prototyping, basically, for uh, doing, doing that. That was neat. Um, there's uh, uh, somebody who, who I met that was doing something similar um, at OSCon, uh, and oh, and also Tim Caswell was at OSCon, and his demo, his his uh, his talk was about uh, using I think it was STL or something, uh, video game. Uh, Felix, what what was it actually called? The library that he was using? I, I can't remember. I don't really do any video game programming. Um, I'm not sure if I recall. I think it was SDL. Yeah. Yeah, SDL. Yeah. So Tim Sounds Caswell right. basically his demo was you know. Uh, his demo was hooking up two video game controllers to uh, USB and then controlling a couple of you know um, uh, avatars on the screen and having them shoot at each other or whatever. It was amazing, but it, it was t had nothing to do with the web. Yeah, I, I you know I, I was talking about this the other day with a friend of mine actually. Like I haven't I haven't seen I haven't really worked much in in um, 
website or web browser code in a really long time. Um, I mean, I did, I did some stuff on the, on the NODE portal recently for some of the updates that we're releasing, but I mean, yeah, most of it's all kind of back-end, low-level-y type stuff. Yeah, it's actually I mean, one it's, of the things I like to preach is that it's like... You know, it's, it's, it's a really good systems programming platform. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's given the ability to the web developer to do systems-level programming. Right, right. And I mean, it's just, it's just a more accessible language, and then things kind of run, run nicely parallel, and, and it, it has a lot of very low-level hooks. So that's very, very nice. Yeah, I also write I actually, almost as much Bash these days as I do uh, as I do JavaScript, but with all the the sysadmin tasks kind of involved in in running a hosting service, it seems like it seems like Bash and SH are almost like my my main languages now, which is <laughs> sort of depressing. <laughs> I still write PHP sometimes when I really like one thing that I mentioned where I have sequential I/O. I sometimes uh -huh. use uh, PHP. Just yeah, because that's nice. something I, I, I know because I used a lot in the past. It's not necessarily what I choose for new stuff anymore, but Yeah. You get that jolt of nostalgia too, you know. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like visiting it's like visiting the place where you where you went to, to, to grade school and uh, you know, you realize that the doors are like way shorter now and stuff and <laughs> <laughs> that's an awesome analogy. <laughs> So I think um, I think we're starting to like really start to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel here. Oh, so Mapes asking about the work on Dtrace and Node is someone working with that at Joint? Um, yeah, so I think that there there are actually already Dtrace hooks in um, at the Node level for various things, and that's actually what we're using in in Cloud Analytics at Joint. Um, I say we, but I don't actually personally work on that. But that's that's what uh, what Joint's working on. Some guys at Join are working on for that the cloud analytics program. It actually uses the the dtrace hooks into Node, so that when you when you have a server that's running on NODE, we can tell you know the average latency and then of each web request, and then break it down by basically any data you can imagine. Um, you know, break it down by by URL or by file system operations or or whatever, and that's all done using by creating dynamic uh, dtrace instrumentations and then pulling them for data. But um, yeah, my uh, Brian Cantrell is actually the uh, Michael Michael mistyped it Brain Cantrell, which is actually like kind of not far off from from what the guys really like. He's very uh, I, I've kind of mentioned before, like talking to him about computers. I feel like my mom must feel talking to me about computers. Um, so uh, yeah, he's uh, he's obviously all about Dtrace and, and very involved with that, but. Um, there are a lot of problems, I guess, getting Dtrace instrumentations into V8 itself. So going any lower than the node stack is really, really difficult because um, for reasons. I don't know. I'm not gonna I I am getting out of my depth. I'm gonna like kind of like paddle my way back over to the shallow end of this pool, but there's there's reasons that C programs are very hard to instrument because of how they're compiled and how Dtrace works and how it hooks into the kernel or whatever. So I don't know if that if that problem actually has a solution or if we're just going to have to kind of deal with having node instrumentations and be happy with that. But um, it is kind of cool. I have actually seen uh, the Dtrace probes in Node put to really good use to debug a problem using the um, the instruments program in in OSX. 
which uh, instruments just is basically a GUI around um, around Dtrace, and it's very very similar to to what you get with Cloud Analytics. Actually, I mean, you can see nice little graphs, and then you can just dig in and you know see exactly what function call was happening and what the stack trace was at that at that moment and everything. It's really really neat. So, I think. Um, it was mentioned by Craig that we're going to run out of uh, recording space in uh, eight minutes now. So I guess with this last questions or I, I have one really really short thing. Um, <laughs> I've been I've been working on a um, on a patch um, for Node recently, which is called uh, or which is for the event emitter. Um, oh, that's <clears> which, a good one. Which gives it namespacing. Um, it's we're not sure if it's going into Node, um, but there is a. Um, but there, but there is a repo for it right now on my GitHub, and I'll post that into the um, into the uh, IRC. Um, it basically gives you the ability to classify your um, the the um, the way in which you refer to events um, to give them uh, to give you more expressiveness when you're dealing with larger systems. Gives you the ability to 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 really manage how you deal with event names. Um, a lot of the time, when you're dealing with you know complex naming event, uh, namespaces, really help quite a bit. Um, so uh, so that's available for anyone who's interested in it. And there's also a uh, there's also a commit that's pending that or, or a, a patch that's pending. It, it, it might happen. Um, we're still discussing it though. <laughs> I think I think at least some part of that, some form of that, is definitely going to end up in in Node Core, um, if only because it's faster. Right, and like makes our benchmarks faster, and we we all love that. Right. I, um, yeah. Actually, it's kind of interesting um, looking at this code in isolation, not on the A/B tests, but individually uh, taking the actual raw JavaScript, putting it in isolation, and running uh, benchmark JS against it. Um, it actually runs more than twice as fast, um, which is kind of an interesting thing when you start like considering how. Um, how much latency uh, comes into play with uh, networking stuff, but the um, but the, the the library itself actually benches really really fast, um, and uh, so yeah, that's that's definitely a value add for it. Yeah, I mean the, the tricky thing with benchmarks though is like you have to multiply the sa the the improvement by how big a, a slice it current it, it actually is. So if you take a a thing that's twenty percent, and you make it twice as fast. You've saved ten percent. You haven't saved, you know, a hundred percent. So exactly. Yep. Uh, um, but still, I mean, that being said, Event Emitter is a uh, a very, very, very hot piece of code. We spend a lot of time in there. So making that a, even a little bit quicker is is a pretty big win. Yep. So I think that's about it. So yeah, let's uh, call it a day. JavaScript party. <laughs> <laughs>